in light of last evening's talk regarding afflictive emotions and my mentioning of the wholesome quality of kindness as a very helpful and necessary internal attitude in relationship to what comes up in the uh, body and mind. This evening's talk is about this uh, quality. This evening's talk is about metta. And beginning with <clears throat> some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. So this evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, that which is classically called a Brahma-vihara or a divine abiding, the radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation that isn't fraught with any clinging, with any attachment, and not even necessarily with a sense of obligation. This uncon unconditional quality of mind and heart arises actually quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this quality of metta is present when concentration and mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layer of conditioning that keeps one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and with kindness. And so, uh, beginning with an old story, it said that the Buddha first taught metta <clears throat> to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular <clears throat> and seemingly very congenial forest for their uh, three-month rainy season retreat. A forest that was adjacent to uh, a village of very strong supporters. 
who offered to build 500 huts for the monks uh, to stay in during their rains retreat and who were also happy to keep the monks alms bowls filled uh, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight practice, insight meditation, vipassana. It said that the unseen beings, the forest devas, who lived there became fearful of the monks and felt uh, quite uh, put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create frightening sights and frightening sounds and emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would uh, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, which broke their concentration and disrupted their mindfulness. Some even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale, to which the Buddha responded. My beloved monks, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to this particular forest again saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was this. He said, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that at this point, the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and practice. Out of their great respect uh, for the Buddha, the monks, of course, didn't dare to contradict his wishes. And so armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest, that same forest, and for a while continued to experience feelings of fear and anxiety while at the same time they quite diligently and virtuously practiced metta. And soon there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas who had previously been hostile towards the monks, towards the monks their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the Deva's experience. Along with the sense of being connected like with family. 
And the, then the inclination arose to provide an environment of safety for the monks, to protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that they could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all became arahants, they all became enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta, this quality, this capacity to stay present and connected with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for, uh, that brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and is felt as a a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself and another particular person or a group of beings. Wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and be secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They are, of course, important on one level. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love. Our personal wants and personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, of human kindness, is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being. And then at some point, 
radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate and to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others, ourselves. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never had, never experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult, if not impossible, time with this practice. But really, actually, such people are very, very rare in this world. Everybody, almost, pretty much everybody, experiences some degree, somewhere, sometime in their life, of some unconditional love, unconditional kindness being given to them. Every one of us here in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, certainly. Some love, some warmth given freely. So, for example, a very simple, ordinary experience. A few days before this retreat began, I walked into the Rancho Estetas post office here to pick up the mail. And someone opened the door for me. And I had never seen this person before. I didn't know them at all. We looked at each other and we smiled to each other. And I thanked her and I felt a, a warm connection between us. Just that. This is unconditional kindness. This is a very ordinary expression of metta. Each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're close to. So very likely kindness expressed maybe with a more overt and stronger energy. That unconditional warmth of loving kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us, we could say, that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle.
the kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give it's always a gift every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time their care their support or in some way their help unconditional kindness given freely it's a choice a very natural choice that others make and that we make and it has an effect on us and it has an effect on others metta is really the ground the bed so to say that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from the three other divine abidings karuna compassion mudita appreciative or empathetic joy and equanimity upekka it's also the capacity of heart of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold to unfold both from and into metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness acceptance kindness and patience with each of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation when i was in china in 1986 i found that the contemporary chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols the top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing a symbol for breath and the bottom symbol was one for the heart so based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing the character for meta love meta love that particular kind of love is breath through the heart with the cultivation of meta we're moving towards or inviting the opening the expansion of the mind the heart and continuing with the metaphor of breath in relationship to this meta is like the experience of breath moving through us it's intangible boundless empty where from where to and yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us so what is it in the text it's often spoken of <clears throat> as non ill will the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind however they're manifesting moment to moment to moment and the absence of ill will towards others
So, no aversion in any direction. Meaning, no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often might we think that, for instance, the person sitting next to us or maybe on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is so much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind uh, says that this person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment, internal felt judgment that they're better than me or I'm no good or I'm great no sleepiness no movement just look at that person nodding away restless moving around etc obviously this isn't metta we're creating a separation me other the heart the mind is actually contracted and it's uncomfortable if we really take a look mindfully recognizing and acknowledging this is part of our practice and one way to attend to the suffering of separation the ache of self-centeredness is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we are identified with and attached to, either in a positive or in a critical way, as our self, our body, our thoughts, our ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind filled, a mind and heart filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace beings. Not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us in some way. A mind, a heart filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect for and care for any being, all beings. And something from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. 
Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation, says Krishnamurti, is the movement of love. It isn't the love or the one of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing, no interest in fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are practicing, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you, a few of you, are also working with the practice of metta a bit in relationship to uh, its purifying and healing aspects. And with this, you're also learning, at least to some degree, that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind, a starting of that from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, through the heart, and through the body begin to unwind, begin to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the uh, great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj uh, uh, what can make me love? One of his students asked him the question, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. something to contemplate. You are love when you're not afraid. Metta love. Something that was amazing and really quite important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. 
it actually has nothing to do with approving of. When with the heart of metta we're able to connect with beings beneath that with uh, which we might not agree with or connect with beings who maybe act in ways that we might not like or might even not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level but not necessarily approving. There are no favorites, no favoring one over the other with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is actually a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there were no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, the world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until this very, very moment when there have, uh, has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been or is right now increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, is so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger says this, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart, the mind of metta, the kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives even in ways that we may never, never know. I'd like now to spend a few moments exploring some expectations that we <clears throat> might think, uh, uh, what we might think of uh, uh, the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. 
And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect, impossible to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that we in fact may have experienced but didn't label it as unconditional kindness, didn't label it as unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can actually get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not at all romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily always a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself in relationship to others and in relationship to others. To connect uh, directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. I found, as I've already said over the years, that the uh, qualities of honesty and humility are really essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this so clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's chief, uh, two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month uh, rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and their various responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindaka's monastery. 
At that time, the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rain's retreat at Savati. I wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready. The venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away the Blessed One called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha, and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sari responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave twelve years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son. When he was eighteen years old, you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology but it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People who use water, people use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with the heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. 
Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing, and yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with the heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta wrongly and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of, of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense and makes amends in the future and in the future practices restraint. Then he turned to the venerable Sariputta saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this reverend monk also asks for my pardon, as I may have been, not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three times to each other and reconciled.
metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, or attempting to feed her, giving her uh, pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it in my mouth with uh, a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness from a very young person. A while ago, I uh, read a book that was about and by a uh, 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until, at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. (laughs) It's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. And I'd like to uh, read just a little bit of this book to you. At one point, George was having a a conversation with Richard. Uh, Richard was the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking about um, George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. And here's Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George speaking. That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard. That sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. (laughs) I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good, just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't, doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello 
that can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and beauty of a heart, of a mind steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue just a a little bit more with our 102-year-old, what I'm calling a bodhisattva, George Dawson. (laughs) Much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South uh, because he grew up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the United States. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old and he witnessed the lynching, as he was witnessing the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down the two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace, and then looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. And I'm using his language. And I weren't no animal. And I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If she did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. And George speaking, thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I, I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. 
from her mother and father and back through her grandparents. I could see a hundred years of anger coming out towards me, anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways that you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of ourself. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. It's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to share a story with you, a true story with you, about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Suan was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Suan's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she uh, let them take part in were structured and chaperoned, the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wandering and later cruising around in cars were completely out. So Anne said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow, Sue Ann's mother, was strongly anti-drug and alcohol belonging to the small but very adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. 
When Suan was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Suan called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, she became, Suan became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. And she gave talks on the subject to school and to youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Suan's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Suan didn't respond to peer pressure. Suan was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Suan's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country, running, running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, uh, softball, basketball. When Suan was in the fifth grade, she heard uh, somewhere that to improve your dribbling, your basketball dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And so she performed this daily uh, exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio her mother and her sisters, uh, of course, getting very tired of the sound. <laughs> so for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from uh, Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the, the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game, and Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman. She was 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din uh, from the lead fans, the loud sound. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pre-warm-up game, or the pre-game warm-up, was for the visiting team to 
run out into the court in a line and then take a lap or two around the floor and then shoot some baskets and then go to the bench, uh, their, their bench at courtside. And then after that, the home team would come out and do the same. And then the game would begin. <coughs> Usually the Lady Thorpes uh, lined up uh, for their entry more or less according to height which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, uh, one of the tallest, went first. So that, uh, that day, as the team uh, waited in the hallway uh, leading from the locker room, the heckling outside in the, in the arena got louder and louder and louder. And some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese or government cheese. And the lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. <laughs> Sue, Ann said, Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her, teams running, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were kind of taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. The coach, Coach Zamiga, at the rear of the line had no idea why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. <clears throat> then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket and took it off and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many, many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and at the same time show-offy. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. <laughs> and then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and very fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball right through the hoop with the, with the fans, all the fans, now cheering very loudly. And of course, 
Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree. And I call it Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. There's a fullness of energy and a confident, a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle. Because of the power behind his words, because the power behind his words was born out of loving care, great compassion, and great wisdom. The real results of practice may often come as a surprise. You encounter a a difficult situation and do what seems to come quite naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way that you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal. You might say to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done. But it is a big deal. Because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life. And it changes the lives of everyone you encounter. And I'm closing the talk with um, something that was sent to me uh, a few Valentine's days ago by uh, a student. And it was a Valentine. And um, on top of the words that I'll read was a little circle, a sticker. And it was red, bright red. And in it uh, were the letters in black this is a love. You could peel the sticker off the valentine. And these are the words that came with it. Take this tiny label and stick it on your dining table. Stick it on your favorite book. Stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long-lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall.
stick, use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit together for just a couple moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.